So welcome back everyone. We'll not do the usual spiel because you've only just heard us. So if you remember, and I hope you do, in part one we introduce you to the overarching topic on abuse, abuse, crimes and killings. And we're gonna we looked at the tragic case of Katie, who was killed for wanting to change her life. So just to mention Severa again, it's a UK-based charity who helped us. And we mentioned their details at the start of part one. And we're going to give you them again at the end, along with a statement from their founder, which Rachel will read. I'd now like to take us back to the 7th of January, 1999, to Woodford Green, which is in London. And the weather was cold, but dry. It would range between 5 and 9 degrees Celsius, which is between 41 and 48 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I'd like to introduce us to Tule Goran, who was 15 years old on the 7th of January, 1999, which was the date of her death. Tule was one of four children of Mehmet and Harin Goran, who were both from Turkey, and this is where Tule was born. Her family arriving in the UK in the mid-90s and claiming asylum shortly after her arriving. Now, Tule was around five foot six. She was slim, brown hair and eyes, and for all I can gather, she was a very dedicated and studious girl. In the summer of 1998, which shows what type of person she was, she got a summer job when school was closed for the summer in a clothes factory in Hackney, which is in a different part of London, for those that don't know. Now, her friends described her as a sad girl who would only really show happiness and a smile when she was talking about a man that she was in love with. Now, this man was a... Halil, you know, and he was 15 years older than her. Oh dear. They met when she was working in the factory and they soon took up a friendship, which turned into a relationship. Now, when her parents found out about, actually, now I know people saying you can't call this a relationship and because of the age difference since she was 15, the only reason why I'm not going into more detail on that is because that's not the topic we're discovering, uh, talking about right now, but obviously we spoke about this in the past and we can you can have your own opinions on that. I'm calling it a relationship simply because it's easier to describe and it is yeah. the form of relationship even if it's an unhealthy one. Yeah, for the purpose of the okay. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So when her parents found out about the relationship, they ordered her to end it as they didn't approve. And now you think, you'd think, Rachel, it would be because of the age that they wanted her to end it but it wasn't because of the age they didn't care about that it was because you now was a Turkish kid and like Tule because she was also in her family but he was a Sunni Muslim and she was from the Alevi branch of Islam along with her family but she didn't end a relationship though in fact quite the opposite when her summer job ended the pair kept in contact with occasional meetings and lots of telephone conversations, actually daily telephone conversations. So when Mehmet, her dad, found out that it was still going on, he actually went to where you now was working on the 10th of December 1998 and told him to stop bothering his daughter. Mm -hmm. Well, I need to probably be a bit more specific than that because you now did go to the police because of the, because her father did more to to stop bothering her. Her father sorted him as well, but eventually you now decided not to press charges. 
Wow, so felt quite, probably quite, felt quite threatened. Yeah. Now, on the same day that you now went to the police to, to about the assault, Mehmet also took two days to the police station to report you now for pestering his daughter. But this didn't break them up, though, because just some four days later, she ran away from home to live with you now. Now, this, as you can imagine, and as we've seen how his temperament is, this enraged her father. He reported her missing, and at the same time reported you now for underage sex. Now, it wasn't statutory rape, because she was over the age of 13, but it was unlawful as she was underage, so she couldn't give informed consent. But rather than follow through on this, though, her father actually changed his mind, Rachel. So he deems that rather than break up and never see each other, that the pair should get married instead. Oh, wow. So quickly, he set up an appointment a week later on the 21st of December for them to get married at the local register office. Is he even allowed to do that for a 15-year-old well, in the UK? Rachel, you're one step ahead of me because there was, this, there was a problem, though, because even though all parties were happy to go through with the marriage for different reasons, albeit the registrar, registrar wouldn't perform the ceremony. Let me start Good. again. And I will start again. Um, and despite the father, the father actually tried to bribe the registrar. Oh, of course. But because it was illegal, she because she was underage, he wouldn't do it. And obviously, you're not going to lose your job for doing that. So when the father realised that bribery or begging wouldn't work, he simply rescheduled the wedding for March the 8th, 1999, which was Trudy's 16th birthday. So when she was legally old enough to get married. Now, for those of you who may have noticed, I said earlier that Tule was killed on the 7th of January, so some three months before her rearranged wedding day. So what happened on that day, on the 7th of January? So let me take you back to the day before she died. Now, her father forced her to go home because she'd been living with you now. Now, the reason her father gave for this change of mind was that he didn't want her living with you now's flatmate because he was a man. So he told her that she'd remain at home until he could find them somewhere more suitable to live where they could just be together. Now what actually happened though was when he took her home was that he drugged her, he tied her up so she couldn't escape. Then he then, the day after, on the 7th, sent his wife to stay with his brother along with the other three children because, as he said, him and Chule needed to talk and work things out. Wow. I'm not sure how much talking you can do when you're drugged and tied up. I know, I know. And his wife got shipped off and hopefully none the wiser. Like, I'm hoping she didn't have a Scooby, what he'd done. Yes, yeah, she did. Oh, my God. She saw him tied up. She saw her tied up. And just left. Yes. Okay, you, you you guys talk. I'll see you later. She'd been to- you because she'd been told to. It's, um... I know. I'm sorry. No, no. Okay. We're not we're not dealing with you know a normal so... situation here, are we? With a relationship where both parties have equal say in how their children are treated. Exactly. So he killed her that night on the seventh. Now no one knows exactly how, 
but it's believed to be either via strangulation or suffocation. He then buried her in a garden before moving her to an unknown location. Now, her body has never been found, Rachel. Her family, remember she died on the 7th of January. So her family reported her missing on the 22nd of January. And while he was initially arrested, he wasn't charged. And one of the reasons why he wasn't charged with anything, because his wife backed up his story, saying that she had simply run away. And who had triggered on the 22nd? Had Yuval, that was the boyfriend, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, you know, sorry. Had you now, like, said, oh, I've not heard from her, like, I'm concerned. It was her her friends. And then, obviously, then the family got involved. But, yeah, it, it was friends that initiated it. I get the feeling, and it's my opinion, he didn't want to press charges on the father, and he probably didn't want to report her missing because he had, for all intents and purposes, been in a relationship and having sexual intercourse with a 15-year-old. Yeah, because I was going to say, would he have implicated himself? But, yeah, he's probably um, been concerned about, about that. So, after his wife and, and Julie's mum she changed the story to the police. So she she actually told them after a while that she had seen the daughter tied up and she had been sent away with the kids. So with that and with her advancements in forensic capability, they basically figured out that she had been buried in a garden, um, among other things, that... He and his two sons would be charged with murder and taken to trial some 10 years later in 2009. Now, while his two sons were not found guilty, he was found guilty and he was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 22 years. Now, again, just to stress the same with Katie, I know I'm telling these stories a little bit differently because the focus is not on what happened, it's on the honour-based part of this. So, yeah, he went to jail for 22 years. Interestingly, though, this case was the first one the prosecution used, in the UK at least, specific experts in the trial that were experts on honour-based abuse and killings. Wow. It's also worth noting that prior to being found guilty, in 2001, he was also found guilty of GBH, which is grievous bodily harm, because he'd contacted you now, you know the surname, by the way, but he contacted you now and he told him he wanted to talk about Julie with him. And so when he went to the pub to talk about him, he attacks him. Now, I read somewhere with an axe, but I, I couldn't read it everywhere, but he definitely attacked him and he left him with serious injuries. So he originally received seven years for that, but later on appeal, it was reduced to five and he would eventually serve three years. So this was in between being charged and found guilty of murder of his daughter, which he'd committed prior. Wow. So he killed his daughter, and he tried, by the looks of it, now I can't find anywhere to say that he tried to kill the boyfriend, but it looks like he tried to kill the boyfriend, doesn't it? And Uh, Well, yeah, I think he he clearly had a problem with him, so if it wasn't going to happen before, it might have even happened afterwards if he hadn't been arrested for her murder. 
Exactly. So what led him to this? Now, in the southeastern part of Turkey, where they were from, it was common among rural communities to adhere to the code of Namas. Now, that's an Arabic word that literally translates as virtue. But these days, it's more commonly used in the context of relations within a family in terms of honour, respect and modesty. So when it's translated into English from the Turkish word Namas, it's usually translated as honour. But if you're being literal, then chastity is a more accurate translation. But they they class the entire family as Namus or Namus. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, sorry. They class as the entire family's Namus is violated for things such as a female dressing inappropriately. And the entire family is cast out of the local society if their Namus is violated. And they don't do something to cleanse the situation. Now, so this goes into the family thing that we were speaking about earlier. Now, usually, there's only two things that can be done to cleanse a situation. Murder or forced suicide, which is basically murder, isn't it? I mean, that murder and the word cleanse just don't fit, if you ask me. It's the only way they can... Not be cast out from their they're just, per- their they're perception. They're justifying, yeah. yeah they're justifying yeah. Um, uh, their like aggression and their beliefs, aren't they? With exactly. cleansing. Exactly. Now we covered recently acid attacks with Paul and Bob from the True Crime Enthusiast and Twisted Britain, respectively. Mm. Now, this I found interesting. If a woman has been raped but it's not believed by a family, in Pakistan I'm talking about now, it's common for acid to be thrown in her face to disfigure her. And the, and the families actually see this as a better alternative than having to kill her because they're basically removing her looks because they don't believe she got raped. So they believe she did it willingly. So they're removing her looks so she can't have intimate relations with the game. Yeah. So, so this is like she's their possession, yeah. Yes, and like she hasn't behaved in the way she's expected to behave. So, yeah, we'll just stop her from living her to her true potential and her best life. Yeah, we'll just destroy it. Exactly. So this is why he killed his daughter, and I believe anyway, and tried to kill her boyfriend because of some misguided and warped sense that his family standing within the community could only be restored if he did it. Now, Rachel, this is a 15-year-old girl that we're talking about, and whose only crime was, and I say this crime in inverted commas here, her only crime was, was to fall in love with someone from a different branch of religion than her family had. Who shouldn't have groomed her anyway? Yes, exactly, but from... From the daughter's know, point of view, she was just in love. It was, she, like, so innocent. She is just so, like, caught up in the crossfire, isn't she, of this awful, um, like, killing, like, honour killing, um, but also the fact that she really shouldn't have been put in that situation where she had a boyfriend who was in his 30s, like, you know, yeah who was telling her he loved her clearly like grooming her you know 
just wrong on so many levels. It is wrong, but it doesn't mean, yeah, she shouldn't have had... The only person suffering consequences for that relationship should have been her boyfriend. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just about to caveat that with, she'd have fallen in love at some point, and would a boyfriend that her father hadn't have chosen for her ever be good enough? Who knows? Exactly. So I want to give you some more stats on honour based abuse offences in England and Wales now, Rachel. Now, this is from a very recent report published by the Home Office just a few weeks ago on the 20th of October. Now, I'm going to pop a link to this report in the show notes. So, in the last year, the year ended March 2022, 2,887 honour-based abuse cases were reported in England and Wales. 77 of those were female genital mutilation with 44 of those coming from mandatory reporting that is required by professionals when they come across reports of it. So it's quite frightening that those cases were up 6% from the previous year, cases of honour-based abuse. And they included things like rape, assault, controlling and coercive behaviour, kidnapping and stalking, among other things. And so this shows that we need more awareness on this, Rachel. Absolutely, because I don't even think those figures will scratch the surface of the real problem. They will just be the people that have been brave enough to come forward. Well, exactly. In the report, I'm going off script here, but in the report it says that that 6% increase, the Home Office said it could either be because of increased incidents, better reporting... Sorry, better uh, categorising or more people wanting to report. Now, I believe that it's all of those because it will be more incidents. It also will be slightly better categorising because there's more focus on it now, like there's reports on it now, and better reporting. But, yeah, when they they actually get better at it, they're probably going to be a lot more. So we definitely need more awareness because if I had said to you, Rachel... No, you might be more knowledgeable than me, but would you say like female genital mutilation was an issue in the UK? I'd have probably said no. Would you? No, I mean, kind of touched on that in the last episode that we just recorded and released the part one of this, where like I had heard of this, yeah, and obviously. Um, from, you know, reports or or, um, cases that I've read or or listened to. um, That's my only knowledge of of that. However, I had no idea that it was something that was happening in the UK. Yeah, like on a basis that was often enough to be reported about in these figures. Like, yeah, no clue. You've got, I think, 44 of the 77 cases were from mandatory reporting. And that's only going to happen if if a female is that badly damaged that they've had to be forced to take it to seek medical help. Because yeah. these people wouldn't do this if they had to, unless they had to, because obviously this is something that's done behind closed doors. So that means only 33 were actually reported by non-professionals. Which show, and with with more of them reported by professionals, that means that it's a bigger problem than it's getting reported. 
Absolutely. Heartbreaking because it won't just be happening to women of like, you know, my age and maybe uh, early 30s, late 20s or in their 40s, but children as well. Like children who haven't had the chance to, you know, grow up and experience real life and happiness and yeah, that's just it's the innocence of it. And this is where awareness innocence is that's needed. taken away, sorry. That's okay. And this is where awareness is needed, education is needed, which is why Severa is so important in what they do. And they've also got a, a youth website that's geared towards younger people, so and that can be clicked through from their main main website. So it's this is why what they do is so important. And I'm gonna to touch on them again after the next case but for the final case I'd like to take us to 11th of September 2003 and this time I'm going to take us to the town of Warrington which is in the county of Cheshire and I'm not going to do any of my usual spiel of how cold it was or anything like that but um, I want to introduce you to Shafilia Ahmed who was 17 at the time of her death on 11th of September 2003. Now she would British and I want to say she was British because some people will be listening saying well these people have been born elsewhere and come here and this is why it's happening to people in the UK. Shafelia was born in the UK. She was British. She, she had a British accent. She was as British as you or me Rachel and she was born in Bradford on the 14th of July 1986. Now she was your typical teenager. She had dreams of going to university and becoming a lawyer. And she worked part-time in a call centre at the time of her death. She did die, unfortunately. Now, she was killed because she supposedly brought shame on her family. So let's see how, shall we? And let's see if she really did. We know that she didn't. Come on, listeners. But let's see how her family thought she brought shame on her family. So to begin with, again, no suspense here. Her parents killed her, and both her mother and her father, not just one, both her mother and her father killed her, and they killed her on the 11th of September that evening, and it was a Thursday evening, and Shafilia was sat on the sofa in the lounge of her family home. She was sat with her siblings and her parents, now her mother, Farzana, and her father, Iftikar. Now, she was wearing a t-shirt, which was covered by a hoodie, and a pair of reasonably tight trousers. So, as you'd imagine, typical teenage clothes. T-shirt, hoodie, bottoms. Not that, yeah, not that this is to be the topic of conversation on this incredibly serious subject, but I love the way that you said reasonably tight trousers. Sorry. Yeah. Carry on. That's, that's, that's okay. Um, you have to explain that to me later. You've lost me a little bit. but um, it, Well, it's just being a typical teenager, isn't it? Like, you wear... Yeah skin tight clothes but you've just like kept her modesty intact by saying reasonably uh, tight yeah. trousers yeah sorry so yeah typical teenage clothes nothing revealing or anything like that now Shafilia, she started arguing with her mother early in the evening when her mum picked her up from her part-time job in the call center and her mum started immediately complaining about the clothes that she was wearing a hoodie and trousers for God's sake. So they, she immediately started complaining about the clothes she was wearing. And so the argument carried on in that evening. 
So as was common by this point, the argument led to violence, with the usual routine being one parent would hold it down and the other one would beat her. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, and exactly. And both would do it at different times. It wasn't just like the mother always holding it down and the father beating her. They would take it in turns. Andrew, that is heartbreaking. Like, a 17-year-old. Imagine being 17 and having that happen to you. Imagine what's going through your mind. Exactly. Now, now on this evening, the violence started, as was becoming, unfortunately, normal now. And then her mother turned to her husband and said, let's just finish it here. So they got a plastic bag, they shoved it in her mouth, they held it down and they suffocated her in front of their other three children. No. Yes. So she was dead at 17 for what ultimately the reason being, the reason was several reasons, but because basically they thought she had become too westernised. So, and bear in mind, she was born in the West, but it didn't start there. It wasn't like one incident. There had been so many chances to save this life of the young girl, this young girl, and they didn't happen. So I want to just go into a little bit more detail. They wanted to marry their daughter off into an arranged marriage to one of her cousins who was in his 20s, 10 years older than her, and they wanted her to move to Pakistan to be a good wife and most likely never to return to the UK. Something which was the exact opposite of what she wanted for herself. Remember, she wanted to go to university and to become a lawyer. So she resisted this, which is understandable. She didn't want to be married to someone that she'd hardly met before and who was related to her and moved to a different country. On several times, she refused point blank to enter into the arranged marriage, which in itself brought shame on the family, according to her parents. Now, additionally... They also thought that she had brought more shame on her family because she had friendships with boys who were the opposite sex. Now Wild. I know, it's crazy, they, isn't it? They brought their children, like they birthed their children in the UK, I, I, and yet they are almost punishing them for I, their upbringing in a westernised country where girls have friends. And do, you, do you want to hear something that's I've not put in it? I wasn't going to mention it, but I'm not putting the script. But do you want to hear something that's ironic? Yeah. the dad, Iftikhar, yeah. was originally married to a Danish woman and had a son with her. Now, he was forced to end that marriage and go into an arranged marriage with her mum due to pressure of his family. So, if anyone would have understood what his daughter was thinking, it should it's have him. been him, yes. And in fact, can I just ask, when that happened, say, in the 70s, before the kids were born, would he have been at risk of an honour killing? Would his parents have killed him? It's mad, isn't it? No, and that is what is also, like, massively wrong with this whole scenario. It's not, you know, you have dishonoured your family, but it is that you are female and have dishonoured your family. Yeah, now, let's get this right here. Some and I'm not condoning. Ma- yeah, that. some ma- no, some males are killed through honour-based uh, uh, killings and abuse. So it does happen to males as well. But yeah, it's predominantly female. So you're right. So Shafelia was unhappy from a young age, Rachel, because of her parents' strict upbringing. Now it's been documented and it's not disputed 
that she started to run away from the home from home at the age of 11 each time either returning home or being taken home her parents doing the usual thing of going to the police and reporting her missing and all the things you expect from a normal family yes now shephelia herself now she said this herself that the violence escalated when she was 15. during one of the times she ran away from home she spoke with a senior homelessness officer and annie marie woods now woods described her as a shy and quiet girl who was genuinely frightened of the impending marriage that was to take place Shafelia told her about the beatings. She told her that one would hold her down and the other would beat her. And she actually handed Annie Woods a note which read, Now these are Shafelia's words directly. And we don't often get to hear the victim's own descriptions, but these are her actual words. Over the past few years, I've been experiencing domestic violence, which has stopped me going to college on more than one occasion. They have also forced me to quit my job. From that, I saved up £2,000, which they took out of my bank account. But my fear is that my parents were going to Pakistan to get me married to someone and left there. So, so she, her fear is not the beatings that she's taking or the money that got taken off or being forced to quit a job, which all should be fearful, is that she's going to be taken to Pakistan and left there. It's awful, isn't it? Like what she must have felt on a daily basis, scared in her own home, you know, not wanting to put a foot wrong, not even even questioning probably her own behaviour every single day. Am I saying the right thing? Can I be seen walking to the bus stop? You know, what if somebody opens the door for me and my parents witness that? Like, you know, exactly. just... Exactly. Now, 11 months before her death, on one of the many occasions she was absent from school, her teacher phoned her up and asked her directly, do I, do I need to be worried about you? Now, Shafelia simply replied, yes. And when she did return to school several days later, she had a cut lip and faded bruises. Now, when she was asked about them by the teacher, she was told, the teach, she told her teacher that she was held down by her mother and her father beat her. So the teacher did what she was supposed to do. She referred it to the social services. So when the social worker visited her school, she she said that she could see no bruises. And she of noticed- Of course, because they had faded by that. Yeah. And she noted that Shafelia did say that she was to be married in Pakistan, but she downplayed what was happening to her and didn't want any action. So the case was closed. Now, I guess you have, I guess the question I have, and maybe you're having this, Rachel, is if you have a teacher who can give evidence on this, should sometimes the situation be taken out of the victim's hands? Oh, absolutely. Especially when it's a child. What if, as well, that victim, uh, yeah, is absolutely under intimidation? So you've got a third party who should be able to, um, you know, give. An amount of information that should be treated seriously by the police without the victim proving it. Exactly. And another incident of the abuse she suffered came from her friend who testified in court that Shephelia had once dyed her hair and put false nails on. Again, 
tell me a teenage girl that doesn't do this, Rachel. And something which is pretty normal, but her mother, as soon as she saw it, she washed her hair, she ripped the nails off her, and she called her a slut. So this is not normal for a mother. It's not normal behavior, no. And like I say, it's almost like, you know, I'd feel like saying to my mom, you're punishing me for bringing me up around people where this is normal behavior. How on earth do you expect me to behave? I haven't been raised around people that, you know, don't wear makeup, don't dye their hair, don't have false nails and don't speak unless they're spoken to. So how am I meant to know any better? Exactly. Now, while in Pakistan with her parents five months before her death, Shafilia drank bleach. She was that desperate. Oh, my God. So attempt on her own life as well. Yes. If that's not a cry for help for social services, what the hell is? This is something which her parents just brushed off, and they actually said that it happened because she mistook it for mouthwash. Oh, yeah, because bleach doesn't stink. Yeah. Um, That's so awful. Are you down mouthwash, don't you? Yeah, Um, but, yeah, exactly. You don't even drink mouthwash. But, like, I've been, you know, I don't even need to be in the same room as bleach and I can smell it, you know? Like, mouthwash, on the other hand, unless it's right up under my nose, very insignificant of a smell. So I don't understand how that was justified. Exactly. Now, there are lots of other recordings since, but I just wanted to give you a few so we could establish a pattern. And I think we've established a pattern of abuse, would you say, Rachel? Yeah, absolutely. So it would take a few years and a few million pounds of taxpayers' money before parents would be convicted of murder. Her body being found... I'll get onto that. Body was found a few years later after some flooding revealed it from its hiding place because there was no evidence at the time. The police suspected the parents, but there was no evidence. And one of the reasons why they suspected it was because every time she went missing, they went to the police and went through the normal routine. Yeah, this time, happened. this time they did nothing, and they were asked, and they got told. Um, because she was 16, over 16, and because, and then the father had started complaining that she'd only taken Western clothes with her, and um, yeah, so they actually only got found out because one of the other daughters was arrested where she tried to commit an armed robbery on her parents' house. What? And she was caught. So when she was being interviewed, she told police that she'd witnessed a murder. And, and basically, yeah. But what, sorry, for the for the benefit of our listeners, I've just put my hand up. I don't know why. You may speak. Um, yes, thank you. Can, can we just address what her intention was of committing armed robbery? Well, I, I'm guessing that she was estranged from them and to steal the money. Oh, not a cry for help. It was no, no, like she, she was... didn't want to get arrested to then tell the story. No, she was in her twenties by then. Wow, wow. But basically, her parents threatened their children, saying, "Because don't forget, three children have just sat and watched their parents kill their sister." Yeah, yeah. Parents How threatened could I the, that? parents threatened the children, saying that if you tell anyone what happened, there'll be consequences. Just tell everyone that she ran away. So. Yes. 
So it was on the back of this that the police set up a covert recording in their house and they caught um, basically the father saying in the UK, they called them like pig, they called the people pig fuckers and excuse my language here, I don't, I don't know me swear. And he, um, he said that they have to have proof and they'll never find a body and um, they've got no proof. But obviously then they got this on recording and then the body was found because of flooding, which which revealed the body and he used to boast to people that he knew he could i think it was the peak district i might be wrong it could be the moors but he knew where he could hide a body and it never be found well he didn't know because it did get found yeah so they both got life with a minimum term of 25 years wow so uh, this is a i wanted to highlight this case each time i wanted to highlight a case katie I wanted to highlight a case to show that um, on the base case it's happened. Today I wanted to highlight the case to show that um, it's other family members could be complicit and basically um, it was because she was in love and it, it shouldn't happen. And this, I want to highlight the case because it's one of the things that Severa is campaigning for, and they campaigning, they're campaigning for the one chance rule. Now, the one chance rule is the belief that there might only be one chance to speak to a potential victim, and therefore it goes to say, only one chance to save a life. And I think this is a prime example. The social worker, well, actually there was two, the social worker and a homelessness officer, but there was that one chance to save a life. And now if they say that if a professional doesn't take the responsibility seriously, and let's be honest, their obligations as well, that one chance a victim might have might just walk out the door and never How happen again. How often do we see that and hear that? So often. Exactly. We, we give the parents the airtime to corroborate and make excuses for the circumstances. Exactly. And, and then uh, you read these reports that when they build up this massive picture, it's too late. Picture, the picture's been built, right? Yeah. Everyone knows what's been happening from their eyes. But by that point, the person's died. The child has died. They've also got to think that, because they, they, they campaign that, well, obviously domestic abuse is bad. The difference between honor-based abuse and domestic abuse is that a lot of the time in honour basic abuse, the person could die a lot sooner. Yeah. Basically. yeah. And, and Tule is a perfect example of this. Um, so and how, how nonchalant was her, the mum in let's let's end this now, like at yeah, half past six on a Tuesday evening? Like, yeah. you know, there's not this big kind of build up, but yeah, I've just had enough. Let's just do it. You know, that's just heartless. All three cases are showcasing like the zero empathy and just just how frustrated people are because they've been disrespected seemingly exactly now now would katie who are too late who are Shafilia, would they still be here if someone had taken that one chance absolutely so this is why for me it's important and this is why I wanted to do this episode, 
because it's something that needs more limelight on it, Rachel. And as a society, we have our heads buried in the sand. We say this is something that happens far away in a different place. It doesn't affect us. Well, it does. This needs more noise and it should get more exposure. And then until it's in the public eye enough that we get prop proper recording of these crimes and then proper actions to stop them. It, it's, and it's so that, that people, simple. More people identify behaviours and traits in the victims yes. and they can come forward as well. Because no doubt all three victims had friends. Yes. And, you know, people close by, colleagues, peers, students who knew them and thought something's not right here. But showcasing that, bringing it into the light of day will give those people opportunity to say something's not right, I'm going to speak out. Exactly. Now, Rach, I think it's now a good time for you to read the statement that Afro gave us before we wrap up. Yeah, so this is a quote from Afro Kasim, CEO and founder of Severa UK. Honor-based abuse, HBA, as we will now refer to it in the quote, is a crime committed to defend a family or community's honour. Perpetrators feel that the only way to restore family honour is to kill or harm and can involve physical, psychological, financial, sexual or emotional abuse. Globally, 5,000 people each year are killed because of HBA. Severa UK is working to end HBA for good. When the charity was established in 2010, there was very little understanding of HBA and harmful practices like female genital mutilation or FGM and forced or child marriage. It wasn't considered an issue because there was no data to support that it was happening here. Specialist services like Severa UK have fought to have these issues recognised. Yet we know that figures like the Home Office's latest statistics are still only the tip of the iceberg. These culturally specific practices, which can affect a wide range of communities, are often hidden. And there is still a huge gap in awareness and education, both among professionals in local authorities, voluntary and statutory services, who need to be able to identify people at risk and respond accordingly, and also in affected communities in terms of what support and protection is out there for people at risk. It is not possible to tackle HBA in the same way as domestic abuse. In HBA, the threat of serious harm or even death, death is often extremely high and immediate and appropriate action is needed. This is the reason we advocate the one chance rule. Because when a disclosure is made, that might be the only chance to save a life. You'll be able to learn more about the one chance rule in a link that Andrew will include in the show notes. More work is also needed to engage effective, affected communities to raise awareness of these issues as abuses of human rights rather than accepted cultural norms and also in schools to educate the younger generation from all backgrounds, something our Severa UK Youth Advisory Board leads the way in. There is also a need to empower specialist services with the knowledge and expertise to go out into these communities and other areas to raise awareness and challenge these practices through appropriate funding and collaborative working. Okay, thank you, Rachel. And 
and thank you everyone for for sticking through with this with this i know sometimes these are pretty hard going due to the nature of what we talk about but we do do these type of episodes periodically so if you think there's an issue or a cause that we should be speaking out about to get more exposure then please do reach out and we can have a look into it and see see if we can or not now also please again do go and check out severa uk that's spelled s-a-v-e-r-a-u-k on their social media or the website again which i'll put links on there they have a current campaign at the moment which is uh 5k for the 5,000 years a uh, 5,000 deaths a year which happen so like can you walk 5k can you can you swim or can you do a 5k jigsaw puzzle or something just to raise awareness um so why it's not an option visit? for everyone yes exactly they thought about me there so why not um visit their website to see how they can help and uh, thank you everyone from me and thank you for for listening to us yeah and and thank you andrew for bringing this case bringing these cases and this subject to the forefront today it's been very informative okay and we'll see you all in in two weeks time bye